Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here at Incarnation. Uh, and I wanted to start off, thanks to my family for bringing my color printouts, but um, I don't know how well you can see this, but does anyone know what this is a picture of? You can just yell it out. Yard signs, yeah, these are yard signs. Yard signs you have probably seen all over the place. Um, and does anyone know, even without being able to read it, what the first line of these yard signs is? If you do, just call it out. In this house, we believe, that's right. Yes, so there are some variations that I've brought on these signs. Um, but yes, in this house, we believe black lives matter, science is real, water is life, kindness is everything, etc., etc. And we see these signs, these in this house we believe signs, all over my neighborhood, which is a few blocks from here, and really just all over the place. But earlier this summer, I read an article in the Washington Post about how a sort of passive-aggressive uh, sign fight had erupted in Alexandria City. So it started with, this is actually a picture from the article, with kind of the original, in this house we believe, someone put it in their front yard, as people do. And then the next door neighbors, these were townhomes, put up a different sign that says, in this house we believe simplistic platitudes, trite tautologies, and semantically overloaded aphorisms are poor substitutes for respectful and rational discussions about complex issues. <laughs> then, kind of this argument took on a life of its own. And these signs started to appear in people's yards that no one had put there. So the next one that cropped up said, in this house we believe that using snark and sarcasm and pedantic, overly complex language to respond to others' somewhat meaningless virtue signaling is just divisive and trollish behavior, but hey, signs are fun. <laughs> and then it really went to the next level, and no one knows where this came from, but these signs started to crop up in all sorts of people's yards, which say, we believe the legal thriller Michael Clayton, starring George Clooney, Tilda Swinton, and Tom Wilkinson, is a vastly underrated cinematic masterpiece and easily one of the five best films of the 21st century. <laughs> I love the amen over here. That gets at the gist of it, right? So I do not condone this sort of proxy fighting with your neighbors at all, but I do think this phenomena of yard signs, of competing yard signs, of yard signs that are trying to tell you something, are actually getting at something significant, something that is actually true underneath all of the aphorisms. Because what we believe ought to shape what kind of household we are. It ought to shape what kinds of people live in this household and how they behave. And today's passage from 1 Timothy functions like that. It's like an in this house we believe statement, but it's for the household of God. And this one is not at all a simplistic platitude. It is profound, it's full of power. It can transform and shape our whole way of life, our whole way of making choices as we move through the world. 
Now, Paul essentially says, in this house, we believe Jesus Christ was revealed in flesh, vindicated in spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among Gentiles, believed in throughout the world, and taken up in glory. And this, in this house, we believe, this is the heart of 1 Timothy. This is the pinnacle of the letter. It's like a hinge point. Everything that comes before has pointed to it, and everything that comes after will flow out of it. So Paul begins this passage saying, I'm writing these instructions to you so that you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, I've actually already quoted that uh, passage in the very first sermon in this series, because I said then, and I'll say it again, that's kind of the summary of the point of this letter. Paul is writing to Timothy to communicate to this church in Ephesus so that they will know how to behave in the household of God. And 1 Timothy is a really behavior-oriented letter, and we've heard a lot of behavior instructions. We've heard about qualifications for church leaders, roles for men and women, how to pray for civic authorities, how to distinguish between good and bad teaching. And as we read through 1 Timothy, and we have a few more weeks in this book, all of these instructions for behavior can start to sound a little bit tedious. Perhaps like Paul is just a little bit too obsessed with how people behave and what the rules are and order in this household. And it actually sounds really different in 1 Timothy than the rest of Paul's letters. This Paul who's had this really liberating, life-changing experience with Jesus and who's always preaching grace and freedom, not so much rules and behavior. And it sounds different from the Jesus we encounter in the Gospels, like in today's parable where you see this tax collector, this flagrant sinner who receives so much mercy while the righteous rule follower, good behavior, goes home empty-handed. So how do we make sense of Paul's repeated emphasis on behavior in this letter? Well, we first can look to the bigger context of the letter. We've talked a little bit about this, but 1 Timothy was written near the end of Paul's life and ministry. And this Jesus movement that Paul himself was a part of and that he had helped spread so far, it was really beginning to take root, to take shape. The followers of Jesus had started to develop some structures. They had started to develop some norms, some ways of doing things, some shared ways of talking about things. The church that Paul is talking to in 1 Timothy is a church that is maturing, that's coming to grips with its place in society. And we can hear this sense in the text, how Paul calls it the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. This is language of temple, of solidity and permanence. First Timothy gives us a snapshot of the church that is moving from being a movement to being an institution. But as soon as I say that, I have to disclose that I have a bit of an anti-institutional streak in me. I come by this naturally. I was raised by hippies. They encouraged me to always think for myself and question authority and gave me a lot of independence. So I have this innate skepticism of institutions that makes me not really want to engage with the institutional nature of the church we see in this letter. 
I love the idea of movements, of people, the weirdness and the messiness and the unpredictability of the earliest followers of Jesus. And we had a vestry day yesterday, and one of our vestry members, Caitlin, uh, called our church-wide group WhatsApp chat, which you're all welcome to get in on, a virtual hippie commune. And my heart just soared. The anti-institutional piece of me just loved that. But I have seen enough in the church and in society, both here and around the world, to know that institutions, healthy institutions, are also how we take care of each other well. Institutions are how we make sure nobody falls through the cracks, how we make sure abuses of power and authority are held in check and brought to justice, how we mobilize people and resources when crisis hits. Healthy institutions show us a way of life that is peaceable and orderly and just and compassionate. And so it is good and it makes sense that Paul in this letter is really concerned that the church in Ephesus be a healthy institution, an institution that bears witness to the kingdom of God, one that doesn't do harm in the name of Jesus. And as the church takes shape, it really, really matters how people behave in the household of God. And that word behave is a word that Paul has actually used in some of those more freewheeling letters. He uses it a lot. It's sometimes translated differently, but it actually means something a lot bigger than just following a set of rules. It's a broader sense of a whole manner of living, a whole way of life, the whole shape and contour of how this faith gets lived out. One of the commentaries I was reading this week kept using this phrase, authentic Christian existence as a substitute for behavior, and I love that. And so in the next verses, Paul calls this existence, this behavior, the mystery of godliness. Or a clearer way of translating that might be the mystery from which true godliness springs. The behavior of Christians, this true godliness, this authentic Christian existence, it springs from a mystery a thing that was once hidden and has now been revealed. This is Paul's in this house we believe moment. This is where he describes this mystery, this central reality at the heart of all Christian behavior. And Paul says that our behavior is patterned on God's behavior in Jesus. Listen. He was revealed in flesh vindicated in spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among Gentiles, believed in throughout the world, and taken up in glory. This is the mystery of godliness. This is what is communicated in the way we live, the way we behave. Our behavior is telling a story about what God has done. We are behaving that story out in the world. And this story, as Paul presents it here, has both this earthly dimension and this heavenly dimension to it. So in the earthly dimension, we hear God reveals himself in flesh. The creator makes himself known in creation, in the life and death and physical body of Jesus of Nazareth. 
And we hear that this Jesus will be proclaimed in all nations and cultures and ethnicities throughout the world, in every language, everywhere, to the ends of the earth. It has a geography to it. It has a cultural flavor to it. And then in the heavenly dimension, we hear that he's vindicated by the Spirit. He's seen by angels. He's taken up in glory. Jesus' resurrection is this heavenly declaration that God has won, that death is defeated, that human flesh has been exalted to the realm of the Spirit where the angels dwell. Jesus has opened the way for humanity to live with God forever in glory. And so what we see in this scripture is we see a God who presses in, who doesn't hold back, who doesn't in any way disdain his creation or human flesh or any race or any people, but instead he is always moving out in love to restore creation to himself, to reconcile heaven and earth, to knit back together what's been torn apart. This is the mystery of godliness. This is the wellspring that all of our behavior flows from. And this is our pattern for a way of being and acting in the world. God's behavior in Jesus. Well, I said earlier that this passage is like a hinge, that every instruction Paul's given feeds into it, and every instruction that follows is going to flow out of it. We're going to hear echoes and reverberations of this passage through the rest of the letter. Paul is going to talk a lot about godliness and what that looks like. And we start to hear the echoes in the very next verses, where Paul warns against these false teachers who are saying not to eat certain foods and not to get married, presumably not to have sexual relations. Paul takes this really seriously. He calls this a lie, hypocritical, and demonic. He says, this teaching is not from God, but from his enemy. This teaching comes from the realm of death and destruction. It might look like righteousness, but it's not. And listen to the reason he gives. They, these false teachers, forbid marriage and abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected, provided it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by God's word and by prayer. Paul has just given us this glorious vision where God doesn't reject what he has made, but he is restoring it to himself. And so we pattern our behavior on God's behavior. We don't shrink away from the created world or from other people or the world and all the frailty of living in a human body. We move toward creation. We move toward our own createdness with gratitude. And we receive the things God has made, food and touch and human intimacy, as these good gifts from God. We trust God moment by moment to help us use them, for them to meet our needs. And we navigate all of the temptations and the struggles and the pains and the sorrows of life in a human body, life in a created world, 
with this humble posture of saying thank you, thank you. This posture of asking for what we need and for asking God to bless what we have. So in the end, we see that Paul's emphasis on behavior here is really just calling us to this deeper trust and this deeper participation in God's work in us and in God's work in the world. We move out into the world as people who are reconciled and reconciling. We move out. We don't shrink away. We enjoy the good gifts of creation. We say thank you. We want our churches to be full of people who behave like this. We want to be people who behave like this. We want our lives and our institutions to tell the truth about who we are, about this household and what we believe. So I pray we would never reduce the household of God and what we believe to just empty platitudes, to things that look like righteousness but are actually from the enemy. I pray that we would really learn how to behave in the household of God and that God's behavior in Jesus would be our pattern.